Visiting us, we uh, welcome you to the President's class. And we hope that you enjoy your experience today. Revelation chapter 20. Now, by way of uh, explaining the nature of the book of Revelation, what I'd like to say is simply that the book of the Revelation is a New Testament book that contains a series of visions. And these visions are given to the Apostle John while he's on the Isle of Patmos by the glorified, the resurrected Jesus Christ. And in the vision, Jesus appears to John. Now, this you have to realize, this is in the vision Jesus appears to John. It's not like Jesus suddenly shows up on the island of Patmos and they got their arms around each other and have a little conversation. <laughs> Jesus appears to John in the vision. And in the vision, he dictates seven letters that John writes down later, after the vision is over. John's not writing it while he's in the vision. <laughs> that will be delivered to seven churches in Asia Minor. And most of the material in the Revelation deals specifically with those seven churches and the events that they are going to experience in their lifetime. Okay? Now, the main reason that John writes these letters or delivers these letters to the seven churches is to, number one, exhort them to uh, not to bow their knee to Caesar. There was a great temptation for believers in the first century to compromise and bow their knee and say Caesar is Lord. Now they didn't do that publicly, they did that in mealtime. And at mealtime you had to make a sacrifice in honor of Caesar. And that pledged your allegiance to him. And this letter, these letters say, do not bow your knee to Caesar. Keep your allegiance to Christ pure. So it was in order to exhort the churches. And then to warn them that in being faithful, you're going to experience persecution. Because when you refuse to bow the knee, you can expect trouble to come your way. And then finally, to encourage them that those who remain faithful, in the end, will be vindicated and be rewarded by the Lord Jesus Christ. So, that's what this book's about. And Revelation is full of symbols. And because it's full of symbols, we should not interpret those symbols out. Literally. You don't interpret a symbol literally. Okay? There's meaning behind the symbol, and our job is to discover what the symbols mean. For example, we're going to see a, we've seen a symbol of a beast. And a lot of artists have tried to draw a picture of that beast. Beast with seven heads and ten horns, and but and they draw a literal picture of the beast. And nothing like that is ever going to happen. The beast represents something. and In Revelation, the beast represents the emperor and represents the empire of Rome. We see a prophet mentioned in Revelation. And you think of a prophet being a religious leader, uh, and, but in Revelation, the prophet represents the religious system of Rome. And yes, there were religious leaders who who headed up the religious system of Rome, but in reality, the emperor was the chief priest. There was a cult of the emperor, and all these different religious cults, and the word cult has been in the news this week, and uh, there were all these religious cults in the empire, 
And the head priest, the Pontifex Maximus, was Caesar himself. So when John sees a beast and he sees a prophet, he may be seeing the same person in two different roles. We don't know that. These are symbols. We're trying to figure them out. And then he sees a dragon. A great red dragon. Literally? Yeah, in his vision it's literal, but it has a meaning, and that represents Satan, the great deceiver. So when we see that, we begin to get a, a handle on the book of Revelation. So while most of the events are going to take place during the lives of the people living in these seven churches, John also includes uh, a portion of his revelation that deals with the distant future. And from 1911 through chapter 22, uh, the vision jumps ahead to the future, and Jesus reveals the ultimate judgment that's going to come at the end of the age. And what's going to happen to this beast and this prophet and this dragon? And what's going to happen to these people who remain faithful? He says, well, let me give you the end game. Let me tell you what's going to happen. Okay? So, today, we last week we looked at what happens to the prophet beast, and it says they're thrown into a lake of fire. Now we come to what happens to the dragon. Okay? What happens to Satan? And so in verses 20, 1 through 3, we're going to call this the, incarnate, uh, the, the incarceration of Satan. The incarceration of Satan. So let's look at chapter 20 and verse 1. Then I saw, notice it's a vision. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit, the abyss, and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon. And now he defines, he, he explains what that symbol means. uses another symbol, the serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and cast him into the bottomless pit, and shut him up, and set a seal on him. Now, when you look at these verses more carefully, we notice, number one, in the vision, and this vision means something, in the vision, an angel comes down from heaven. And he has something in his hand. He has a key in his hand. And he has a chain in his hand. And the key opens and closes the door, because keys go into locks, of the bottomless pit, the abyss. Now, we don't know where this abyss is, but it sounds like a bad place, the bottomless pit. If a little child gets caught in a well, gets caught in a pit, or miners get caught in a great big pit, we try to go down and rescue them. But guess what? Those pits don't have locks. And they don't have keys. But, so, is there a literal bottomless pit that has a door with a keyhole in it? And is there a key? And does the angel who has this great chain, is this how it's literally going to work out in history? Well, that's what he sees in the vision. So he lays hold of the serpent, the dragon, in verse 2, Satan. And he binds him for a thousand years. Now, he takes that chain, and he wraps that chain around the devil, and the devil can't move because he's got a chain wrapped around him in the vision. 
Now, what chain can hold Satan? A literal chain? Look, in Mark chapter 5 is the story of the Gadarene demoniac. The guy who lived in the tombs, remember him? He had a legion of demons and Jesus cast the demons out. It says the townspeople bound him in chains and put his feet in shackles and he broke them like twigs. If the guy that has demons can break chains like twi twigs and they're real chains, shouldn't Satan be able to just snap that chain? Well, yes, if it was a literal chain, but this is what he sees in the vision. This is not how it's going to happen in history. But that's what he sees in the vision. And the vision means something. So we have to find out what this means. So then, he shuts him up, it says. He cast him in verse 3. Look at these three verbs. Cast him, shut him up, set a seal on him. That means this angel is depicted as a jailer who throws the devil into a prison and slams the door behind him and locks it and says, that's it, you're finished. Okay. So... When you look at that, you begin to see, okay, well, what does all this mean? It simply means, guess what? God's in control, and one day he's going to take care of the devil. That's what it means. And the devil doesn't have a chance. When God decides to say, this is it, here's what's going to happen to you, you're not going to bother anybody anymore, then the devil will stop bothering people anymore. Now, if you want to say... Now, I believe that one day there's going to be an angel come down and he's going to find the devil, who's an invisible being, and he's going to put a real chain over this invisible devil, you know, and lock him up. Well, that's fine if you want to say that. And you know something? And when we get down to it, the bottom line, guess what? The meaning's still the same. It's what? Yeah, he's limited. He's locked up. God's taking care of him. So if you try to deal with it in the literal form, that's fine, but I'm just saying that this is a vision, and visions have symbols, and we're to interpret the vision. So, and he puts a mark on it. What in the world does that mean? Sets a seal on it. Not a seal on the door, a seal on him. You know anybody else that's ever been marked? Remember what happened when Cain killed Abel? God put a mark on Cain so that everybody that met Cain realized who he was. And so anyway, what we have here is we have this thing of Satan being bound. Okay. Now what's the purpose for this binding? Look in the middle of verse 3. So that, this is why he's bound, so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. Satan had a full-time occupation. And his occupation is that he's involved in politics. He is, uh, his business is political in nature, and his job is to deceive nations. And since the beginning of time, he's deceived nations. So remember the Tower of Babel when God spread the people and all the nations of the world were formed? And then what did God do? He took one man out of the nations, Abraham, and he formed a new nation. He said, you're not to follow all these false ideas. You're to give your allegiance only to me, the nation of Israel. So there was one nation who would say, the Lord is our God. And blessed is the nation who says the Lord is our God. But all the other nations of the world uh, followed 
Satan. Satan, in a sense, is the power broker behind politics. Now, I grew up in Baltimore, which was a very political city with a strong mayor in the city. And we had power brokers. We had people who were behind the mayor. Uh, and the mayor was basically their political hack. We all know who the power was behind every mayor in Baltimore City. And it was a man named Jack Pollock. And Pollock controlled politics in Baltimore, just like there's somebody who controls politics in Chicago. But behind Jack Pollock, there was a power, an invisible power. And it's Satan who deceives the nations. And so guess what? What we have is Satan has forced them to retirement without any benefit. He loses his power for a period of time. <laughs> and here's what it says at the end of verse 3. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. He's going to come out of retirement and he's going to build a new international coalition. So he's going to get back into politics. So if part one, we can call this the incarceration of Satan. The issues that we cannot determine based on the vision is the location of the pit. Where is it? Is it real or is it just a symbol that he's going to be limited? And is he bound for a thousand years? You sure it's not a thousand years in one second? There could be 999 years, 364 days, 24 hours, and 59 seconds. See, when you get to the literal end of things, you have uh, problems. In fact, there are places in the scripture that says the millennial, millennium lasts 1,004 years, believe it or not. So, what we're trying to do is we're trying to find out what is the meaning, and the meaning is Satan's going to be out of commission for a long time. Okay? I think we can say that, can't we? Okay, so now, let's look at verse 4. Okay? And we're given the reason for his incar uh, incarceration. Look at verse 4. And I saw thrones. Now notice the phrase, I saw. You see that up in verse 1. This is the second part of a vision. Okay? I saw thrones, and they who sat on them, and judgment, or maybe justice, was committed or given to them. And so... What he's going to do now, he's, he's going to tell us what he sees while, the, while Satan is bound. And what he sees are people sitting on thrones and justice or judgment is committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness. That's a second category of people. Souls who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, the gospel who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned, these two classes of people, with Christ for a thousand years. So, the purpose of Satan's imprisonment is that the saints who have died in these seven churches, and we can say throughout the ages, uh, will have an opportunity. Well, they will be vindicated. Justice will be done. Justice will be given to them. And uh, they will reign uh, with Christ. They will receive their reward. Okay. So, notice what they're doing. They're on thrones. 
That means they're reigning with Christ and they are identified. Those that sit on the throne receive their rewards. We know that from chapters 2 and 3. He says, he that overcomes will sit with me on my throne, will be given crowns. These are faithful people who never bowed the knee to Caesar in the first century. And by the way, we could say that throughout all the centuries. And those who are martyred for their faith. So they are identified. Now, in verse 5, he says this. But the rest of the dead did not live until the thousand years were finished. Uh, what about the lost people? What about the people who did bow the knee? What about the people who have not given their allegiance to Christ? What about the people who have forsaken Christ? They made an initial profession, but they, didn't, they were not faithful to the end. Uh, they do not live. They are not resurrected. And then at the first five, end of verse 5, he says, this is the first resurrection. And so the first, and which refers back to those in verse 4. There's going to be a resurrection. Satan's going to be bound. And there's a resurrection. And all the saints of the ages will be vindicated. The rest of the people will not be raised until the end of the thousand years. So if there's a first resurrection, what must there be? There must be another resurrection. And that's when the lost of the ages are going to be raised. And then he says this. Blessed and holy is he who, is, who has part in the first resurrection. That's the faithful people. Over such, the second death has no power. But they shall be priests and kings and shall reign with him a thousand years. So, uh, this is John's vision of what is the end game for those people who have been faithful to Christ. They will be vindicated. They will receive their rewards. They will reign with Christ. In fact, we have to ask ourselves a question in verse uh, 6, where it says, Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection of such as those deaths, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. That sounds like John's interjection, doesn't it? Doesn't sound like part of the vision. See that? That's not, a, that's not symbolic. That's something that John is saying about a group of people in the third person. You see that? That sounds like an interjection or a comment that John's making. He's drawing a conclusion for you so you won't miss the lesson. At least it does to me. Now we come to this last section, and now we're going to see the ultimate punishment of Satan. If we call the first the incarceration of Satan, we could call this in, in the symbolic way, the incineration of Satan. Now look at verse 7. Now when the thousand years had expired, have expired, Satan will be released from his prison. And he will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth. And so he gets out of his prison, there's a sense in which he's paroled, or whatever you want to say. And uh, what does he go do immediately? He gets back into the politics business. You see that? He goes back and he does once again what he was doing before, which is deceiving the nations. How many of the nations? Those in the four corners of the earth. Is the earth square? No. Okay, now, he's just saying, what does he say? What does that symbol mean? What does a square earth mean when he says four corners of the earth? Every nation. He's the great deceiver of every nation, and he's going to deceive the nations. 
So what we would say, if we take the millennium as a literal concept, we would say that that's not the climax of time, is it? Satan's going to be released? That's sort of... Uh, Something else is going to happen after that. In this case, Satan is released. Now, if the millennium is not literal, and by the way, there are a thousand theories here, and I'm not going to get into that whole issue, because it becomes very complicated, and I could deal with it if I were in a college classroom where we could have a lot of discussion and spend a couple hours on this. But all we need to say is, guess what? Satan is bound... And he's going to be released. And he's going to start deceiving the nations again. And then it says, he goes out to deceive the nations again, and then we have these words, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. So now we discover that there's this battle. Okay? Now, is that the same battle we saw last week? That's a question you have to ask. Remember last week there was a battle? What was that battle? Remember? You remember any battle last week? The beast and the prophet, they gather their forces to fight, and the Messiah is on a white horse, and he just speaks the word, and there they're gone, and they're all cast into the lake of fire. Is he describing that battle, or is he making this some sort of chronological thing? First comes this. There's a battle here, and the prophet and the Antichrist, or whoever he is, the emperor representing the emperor, he goes, they go down to hell, and then we have a thousand-year millennium, and now we have another battle. Is he giving us a chronology here, or is he just saying, first let me deal with the beast and the prophet. Let me tell you what happens to them. Late fire. Now, let me deal, we got that out of the way, let me deal for a second with the devil. Or is he trying to give us some chronological plan? This is why this gets very complicated. And the easiest thing for me to do is just give you the simple answer. Now, I've been around here in this class for 10 years, so I believe that you can trust me. Right? I'm not here like the devil to deceive the president's class. Right? So, there was a time that I would have just given you the simple answer. But I love you too much to do that. I would rather say, in some of these things, I'm just not as dogmatic as I used to be. Okay? And the amazing thing is, the more I learn, the less dogmatic I become. When I had a little bit of knowledge, I thought I had all that truth. I had it all. Now that I've gotten more knowledge, I'm starting to realize, hey, I wasn't as smart as I thought I was. So, when I give you some options here, it's not to confuse you. It's just to make you say, okay, things aren't as clear as I thought they were. But the bottom line is all the same. And what's the bottom line? Christ reigns. The saints will reign with him. The devil and his forces and all the nations are defeated. And there's an end game. And the saints will be vindicated. And if you remain faithful... Just like those people in the first century remain faithful, you too will be rewarded. Isn't that the bottom line? When we want all the details and think we can figure out the future, we're doing that for curiosity's sake. That's all it does is satisfy our curiosity. And then we wonder, what does the fifth toe of the Antichrist represent? You know, you're really missing the big picture here. And I think John wants 
these churches to have the big picture say, now let me tell you the end game here. So it could be that's the same battle that was fought back in 19, but now he's just telling you Satan's part of it. We're just not certain on that. Look at that, those words in verse 8, Gog and Magog. There's a reference to Gog and Magog back in the Old Testament in the book of Ezekiel. In Ezekiel, Gog is a ruler of a nation called Magog. And that's a prophecy. And in Ezekiel's prophecy, it says, this God character <laughs> will lead his nation, Magog, against the nation of Israel. Come to war against them. And he'll do it before the millennium. See, now you're not even with me. Old Testament says he'll do it before the millennium. When does it look like it takes place here? After the millennium. You see why it's not so clear? Well, Ezekiel's talking about after, before the millennium, and John's talking about after the millennium. My, what is it? Well, both of them are visions. <laughs> and both of them are symbols. And you're trying to somehow make sense of this. And it's very difficult. One thing I can tell you that it's not. Gog and Magog is not Russia. This does not represent Russia north of Moscow, or north of Israel, Meshach, you know, all that kind of stuff. Now, how do I know? Because I used to teach that. I've got two lessons on Russia's invasion of Israel. But that's not what it means. And when you start trying to figure that kind of stuff out, you're going to always fall into trouble. But I did it and was proud. Because I had figured out the future along with Jack Van Ippy and a few others. <laughs> so anyway. Okay, I'm not as smart as I used to be, and that's just the way it is. Okay, so just say street. It's obvious street doesn't know what he's talking about in this chapter. We can't wait till we get to the next chapter. <laughs> just forgive me. Okay, now what? Now look in verse 10. The devil who deceived them, that would be the nation, was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are. And they shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. So the end game is what? The same thing that happens to the religious and political leaders is the same thing that happens to Satan. He is cast into the lake of fire. Okay, so what are we going to make of all this? Number one, the saints are going to be vindicated. I want to show you something I think is going to interest you. Okay. The saints are going to be vindicated. And Satan and all the enemies of the faith will ultimately be judged and they'll get theirs. Now, if I wanted to talk about really what, from the standpoint of Satan, what the book of Revelation is about, I would say the book of Revelation, with regard to Satan, is about the decline and fall of Satan. In if just as far as, uh, as Satan is concerned. You know, Gibbons had a book called The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. Remember that? Great big, thick book. Well, I would say, with regard to Satan, the book of Revelation is the decline and fall of Satan. And I'm going to run you through this. It'll take us about three minutes. And I think you'll see what's happening here in this book. I want you to just move back to chapter 12. It is an absolute revelation in many ways. And you can just see this. And this will take us three minutes. 
I don't even think there has to be a comment. We're just going to read a couple of verses. Okay? I want you to notice in Revelation 3, Satan, uh, Revelation 12 and verse 3, it depicts Satan in heaven. Revelation 12 and verse 3 depicts Satan in heaven. And you see it says, And another sign appeared in heaven, in verse 3, 12, 3. A great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his head. So we see that he's in heaven. Okay? His goal is to destroy Christ. Okay? Look down at verse 7, 12, 7. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. But they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old, called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to earth. And these angels were cast out with him. So, first of all, the first three verses, Satan is in heaven. Now, he's cast out, and where is he? He's on earth. Okay. Now, he wants to destroy Christ. What's he do on earth? Look at verse 13. Now, when the dragon saw that he had been cast to earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child, who gave birth to Christ. Look at verse 17. The dragon was enraged with the woman because he couldn't kill the child. And he went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. So here we see he's out there trying to attack the Christian. And then in 13.2, look what it says. Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard and his feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power, his throne, and his great authority. So we see that Satan is on earth, and he's trying to destroy the church, and guess what else he's doing? He's giving political leaders power. He's the power broker behind political leaders while he's on earth. See? So once you see that, you see what's happening. That's the fourth thing he's doing. Now look back at chapter 20. This is the fifth thing he's doing. I've shown you four things. This is the fifth thing he's doing. Okay, it was on earth. Now look at chapter 20 and verse 1. I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit, and a great chain was in his hand. He took hold of the devil, who's on earth, Satan, bound him a thousand years, cast him into a bottomless pit. Now where is he? He's in a pit. Now he comes out of the pit. And then the sixth thing that happens to him is found in verse 7. Now when a thousand years were up, Satan was released, causes havoc once again. But then look at verse 10. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone. So, there is the decline and fall of Satan in the book of Revelation. So that's, with regard to Revelation, that's exactly, this is the story. Here's Satan in heaven, tries to lead a rebellion. Cast out of heaven, cast to earth. Tries to kill the child, can't kill the child. Goes against the church. 
Then he goes and he gives power to nations. He deceives the nations. He's a power broker behind the throne. Leading wars against God's people. Always persecuting God's people. Then he's cast in the bottomless pit. He's released and now guess what? His final judgment, the lake of fire. The decline and fall of Satan. So I think if you look at it that way, you get the real meaning behind all the pictures. Satan will have his day. He will not prevail, but the saints will prevail. And so when we come to chapters 21 and 22, with all the enemies of God now cast into the lake of fire, we begin with a new heaven, John says, and I saw a new heaven and a new earth and all the people who were in it. And none of those enemies of God are anywhere to be found. And he tells us that paradise lost in the garden, that was lost with the fall of Adam, is now restored. And God restores the garden of Eden to earth. And the great cycle from Genesis all the way to the, from Genesis 1 all the way to the end of Revelation, that great story of salvation history comes to a completion. And we see what eternity is like. And I think that's the story of Revelation. So we'll pick up at chapter 21 next week. Father, I thank you for uh, trying to explain <clears throat> the meaning of this text. And I know these are not easy, and, and trite answers, and glib answers, and dogmatism uh, don't carry the day when it comes to this. But Lord, there's a principle here, and there is a promise here, that the saints who are faithful, whether in a country where there's very little persecution or whether we're in a country there is great persecution. If we are faithful to the end of our life, whether it's a natural death or whether it's a martyr's death, that we will be vindicated and we will rule with you. In the end, Lord, you are the one who will rule the nations. And you'll rule the nations in truth. And truth and justice will prevail. Oh, Lord, help us to take this lesson with us. Christ's name we pray.